2: Hello, and welcome to episode number 1015 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. As I mentioned in our last show, I lost most of September to hospital stays and recovery. So, once again, today's episode comes to you thanks to the hard work of one of my executive producers, Cynthia Lohman, who handled the edit and mix for today's show. A big thanks to Cindy. A big thank you to you for those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and, of course, we love hearing from you. In fact, the librarian told me that he is going to be reading the best reviews on the show. So, if you submit a five-star rating and review of the show in iTunes, there's a good chance the librarian might share yours on the show in the near future. The librarian asked me to remind you that a copy of our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, is available on Amazon in print and Kindle, and also makes a great Halloween treat. While you're hungry for pumpkin spice, whatchamacallits, peanut butter cups, and other kinds of candy and treats, his books are hungry for your fear. For less than the cost of a mega-sized fall coffee drink, you can feed a book your fear and help keep it cold and wicked. Grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, like today's author, Jessica McHugh. The book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. And that's 100% true. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. Today's episode features two Dark Tales by TWL alum Jessica McHugh. First up we have Pick Your Path and I'll Pray, followed by Always a Bride. Today's first storyteller is the always amazing Graham Rowett. Accompanied by a custom score written by a resident composer, Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Our second story is told by another favorite storyteller on the Wicked Library, Sarah Ruth Thomas. And please, if you enjoy the stories, find Jessica's work and buy it. It keeps her making more. You can learn more about Jessica and find links to her other work on her bio page at thewickedlibrary.com and, of course, at amazon.com. Now let's get wicked. Ah, so you've come
1: in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now, and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library.
3: (laughs) He's in pieces again. When a distant cry wakes Elmer Ray that evening, he has to assemble himself like a marionette with sweaty strings. Untangling his arms from the pillow and unslinging his legs from the sofa's edge, he's a sticky knot tumbling across the floor to retrieve his head. It sits like a swollen plum at the bottom of the whiskey bottle, but he ties it on with a belt of hot backwash that cinches his muscles, sharpens his thoughts, and allows him to stumble to the window facing the Bodhi hills. It's probably another fire that started the hollering. The drought of 1881 is still taking its toll on the California town, and blazes are getting as commonplace as the mining accidents of old. Elmer's certain he'll see flames swell up from a neighbor's barn any second, red and orange fingers reaching for the heavens, followed by the hands of would-be heroes swinging lanterns out into the night. But there are no flames fixing to kiss the sky, no telltale smoke tinged with corn and molasses, or whatever goods the miners turned to when the hills went dry. And though the screaming persists, not a single citizen rushes to investigate. The buildings remain dark, and their occupants quiet, while Elmer's heart aches under the pressure of the woman's wailing. Yes, he believes it's a woman. And not just any woman. It doesn't make sense. The people of Bodhi love a good distraction. Celebration or calamity... It doesn't matter as long as it helps them forget their own desolation for a while. And considering how much they despise Elmer Ray, the entire town should be lapping up his misery like mother's milk right now. They should be gathering at his porch like bees on a piece of warm licorice, eyes like full moons looking down on the man whose wife disappeared without a trace nearly ten years ago. The warped wood beneath the window groans as he sinks to his knees, The planks long ago weakened by years of Jenny rocking from foot to foot, watching Elmer set off for the mine, waiting for him to find his fortune in the hills instead of in her. Whiskey sloshes in his skull as he curls up in the cradle she left behind, and when he touches the secret notch in the wood, the house falls in on him, the walls thudding closer and closer, threatening collapse. But they're not kind enough to splatter him like an egg yolk. They stay far enough away for Elmer to breathe and move, but never find comfort. The place was bigger when Jenny was there. She had a light about her that created space wherever she went. From crowded church services and marketplaces to the confined wagon that carried them from Brooklyn to Bodie all those years ago, Jenny had an energy that opened. She was much like the untamed West, a grand expanse of fortune and salvation, cool water and prism light, changing men so gradually that Elmer didn't realize he was in love with her until they reached Wyoming. A woman like that doesn't deserve to suffer, and if the good people of Bodie won't help her, Elmer will have to scrape up the courage to face her himself. He throws back another belt and gulps so hard it hurts. It's been five years since he walked the path to his former claim, three years since he left his porch and sixteen months since he opened his front door. In all that time, the back window's been his only portal to the outside world, and his only true blue connection's been a barrel-chested teen named Chet. Although their exchanges revolve solely around the boy's food and whiskey deliveries, he likes to think Chet's there for more than payment. He's not deluded enough to believe it, however. The boy's gaze is constantly moving, darting, "'searching the house's interior for some sign of the gold he earns from Elmer each month. "'He'll never find it from the window, though. "'He'll have to come inside. "'But he won't. "'There's the smell, for one. "'And even if it had the reassuring sage aroma of the old days, "'the last time Chet made a drop-off, "'a neighbor spotted him talking to the crazy old shut-in, "'and he took off like a shot. "'Hasn't been back since, either. "'And the whiskey's running low. "'It takes some muscle.' But he forces the brittle door open, and the acidic air of an alien world rushes into his lungs. The night is a leery stranger, the summer air thick as the sweat that ran like congealed mud between his eyes after a day in the mine. A gritty reality stings his eyes, and he has to put on his goggles just to endure the view from the porch. The stiff rubber cracks when he tightens the strap around the back of his head. He expects it to feel strange but the strap settles right into the mushy ravine that divides his scalp into opposing ecosystems. The swampy roll of flesh under the strap cascades into a freckled tear of dry flesh that pours down his back. Jenny used to rub liniment on his scalp at night, and he paid back the favor those months before she disappeared, when the baby stretched her skin tight as a drum. It squirmed and rolled when he did that. When he circled her bulbous belly button with liniment, the baby kicked his hand and did somersaults that made Jenny giggle in a way she hadn't before the pregnancy. Elmer holds on to the memory of that laughter as he fixes his trusty Davy lamp to his knapsack and steps off the porch. Is the ground softer now? He twists his boot in the dirt and furrows his brow. Yes, it feels like wet sand so much he's tempted to kick off a shoe and scrunch his bare toes into the earth. The indulgent thought instantly fills him with shame. Opening his knapsack, he shakes out a canteen of whiskey and takes a gulp, large enough to drown any happy notions to come. It works. The scream sounds like an infant now. The colicky cry of a child who might have never drawn breath strikes him deeper than Jenny's wails. An organ he didn't know existed throbs with the insistent bawling and wrenches him faster down the path. It's like the dent in his scalp, well trod and waiting, and though he made that trek for years, back and forth, away from Jenny, to the mine he worked with Billy, the journey was never so painful as tonight. Elmer looks back at his home, dark and small on the edge of a dim planet, Though he feels the footprints of his former self beneath him like pencil marks chronicling growth on a childhood wall, it's the prints beside the trail that grant him an ounce of comfort. It's as if she chased after him instead of standing at the window, day after day, the floor bowing beneath her as her belly grew nearer to the glass. She was especially anxious the day she died. The physician predicted labor within the week, and Bodie was in the thick of the worst drought in a decade— but they were too close to let up now. Every day, the claim yielded more flour and flecks. It was only a matter of time until they struck the big one, the jackpot, the vein from which all the little droplets broke free. You'll see, Jenny. Once we hit the mother load, everything will be different. Billy agreed, condescendingly patting his little sister's head. That's right. Then you'll have enough money to whisk yourself and the little whelp off to Europe and leave us to our work. It was barely playful the first time her brother said something like that, and by the ninth month it had become a threat. As much as he loved his sister, Billy made no secret of loathing the pregnancy. He made jokes about drowning the baby like a rat or using it as bait to snare the yowling mountain lions that prowled the outskirts of town. But Elmer wanted the baby. Every day before he left for the mine, he kissed Jenny's belly and said, "'I love you, little girl.' because he hoped against hope that the baby would emerge a tinier version of the woman he loved. Beautiful and strong. Obstinate, too. But only because, like Jenny, she would almost always be right. No one in Bodie appreciated the breadth of his adoration. All they saw was his morning desertion, and how distressed his wife seemed at the window, suspecting her husband preferred spending his sweaty days in a cave with her big brother. Nobody said it outright— but there were accusations in their eyes as he and Billy made the long walk through town to their claim, where the pair had been mining since they were twenty. Billy should have been a suspect in Jenny's disappearance, too, and Elmer assumes he would have been the first person questioned had Billy not gone missing the same day. He was the reason Elmer didn't tell Jenny he loved her till the wagon reached Nevada. Billy had been his best friend since they first met the only child of a deadbeat father in a dilapidated Brooklyn tenement, Elmer had nothing to offer the boy with the freckled cheeks. But for reasons Elmer never understood, Billy welcomed him into his life with such unbridled joy that Elmer swore to him a silent vow of loyalty. As they grew, their relationship deepened, and Billy became more than a friend. He became a savior. When Elmer slept through the night... It was because Billy let him sneak into his room and doze in his lumpy twin bed. When he went an entire month without a black eye, it was because Billy whipped up the perfect plan to keep him away from his dad. And when Elmer arrived in California at 17 with a dream of striking it rich with his best friend and a heart full of newly blossomed love, he had Billy to thank for convincing his family to let Elmer join their westward journey. Admitting he'd fallen for his best friend's little sister, and Jenny's confessed reciprocation, seemed a vicious repayment for Billy's kindness. So they hid their love. He stole nights with Jenny just as he used to steal nights with his friend back in Brooklyn. All those evenings, brawling in the streets, sweat and blood-speckled boys, skin on skin in the sticky violence of puberty or on the trail when the nights were too hot for clothes and he and Billy lay out naked under the stars. They belonged to Jenny now. They were one year into mining their shared claim in the Bodie Hills when Billy finally discovered the tryst. He wasn't angry. Elmer wanted him to be angry. The pain rises in him like it did then. It's been ages since this path forged mountains in his lungs and ran rivers from his eyes. He wants to hold on to the thought that it might lead him to Billy again, but it's too slippery to grip. It's hard to catch a breath, too, like trauma had stolen the oxygen from around the adit, and Elmer's head swims with the fog of regret. He's stumbling when he passes the last cluster of limestone that marks the place he once considered another home, another life even, apart from the easy love he shared with Jenny. He imagined it sometimes that Jenny had chosen to stay in Brooklyn and marry one of her many suitors. Elmer would have still gone with Billy. They would have still had the claim. He would have drank the same whiskey, got into the same types of trouble, still sweated out days of shit creek sickness, and all that without the guilt currently shredding a hole in his gut. The screaming is all at once a man and his pickaxe. The noise tugs him faster down the path. The canteen again at his lips, pouring gumption down his aching gullet. It's the last place Elmer saw him draw breath. Is it so hard to believe he might still be there? The word help forms like a pregnant raindrop in the peels, and Elmer stops in his tracks. He sinks slightly into his footprints, like the earth locks him in place, has always locked him, maybe even kept him on the edge of the claim these long years, while Jenny waited in her cradle. The help echoes inside him, and his wonder grows like a tidal wave that rushes him into the crumbling castle where the Brooklyn boys once reigned. It was long ago condemned, but he sidesteps the barriers and sinkholes, and with the lantern flickering memories across the broken ledges, he's finally able to fill his lungs with musty air. Relief is short lived when the screaming begins again. It's like a rubber ball within the mountain a deafening mosaic of voices with no definite origin. Elmer drops the lamp, claps his hands over his ears and shouts, Jenny! It doesn't feel like it comes from him, but her name slides out smooth and wet and dampens the noise. Silence. Then, almost disbelieving, a voice. Hello? He presses his hand to the rock and feels breathing behind the wall. Yes, I'm here. The voice is high-pitched and tear-choked, and words come like a downpour. Oh, thank God! Please help me, I'm trapped! My leg! Please, you have to get me out! How'd you get in there? Please, I can't breathe! He writes the lamp and grabs his pickaxe, with a grace he thought long ago fled his muscles. It's as if no time has passed, and, perhaps, neither has Jenny. It sounds like she's on the other side of the rock, needing him begging him to free her, give her air again, to give her life again. The axe splits the stone as easily as the day they hit the motherlode. The mighty whack that made Elmer and Billy the richest men in Bodie now reveals a woman, flowered in golden dust, pouring from the mountain in weeping gratitude. Patched in grimy yellow and red... She buries herself in his chest and grips his shirt like she hasn't touched anything but her tattered dress for a hundred years. Her neck is raw from it, glistening wet down her back and arms. The cloth is as rough against Elmer's exposed skin, like burlap and pumice loomed into an irritating torture chamber of attire, but he lets her dot him with crimson kisses and burrow herself deeper into his embrace. Only her right leg remains outstretched, The calf shredded and flesh like gilded ribbons curling down her ankle. Jenny, what happened to you? She whimpers an apology and lifts her head, her hair like a dirty bridal veil. It's too pale to be Jenny's. Pushing it aside, he also finds a face too round and lips too small. You're not. His voice catches. Who are you? How'd you get in there? Water, please. He swipes a thumb across her brow and inspects the glistening powder in his swirled fingerprint. Gazing into the chasm where she was trapped, he sees only dirt and stone. Not a crumb, not a fleck of gold anywhere, but on the strange woman's skin. She grasps his hand and bares her dirt-encrusted teeth. You have to help me! I can't walk! Don't worry, I'll get you some help. I'll fetch the doctor. He tries to pull free, and her arms lock around his neck. No, don't leave me, she wails. I can't stay here alone. Not one more minute. Elmer's chest aches with regret. Jenny's gaze said as much each morning, and he still turned away. The woman may not be his dead wife, but she is still a creature in pain, and the gold in her skin compels him like it did the last night he was in this mine When he walked the path more than a dozen times transporting both flesh and gold. Tonight, he will do it once more. She isn't easy to carry. The pain makes her coil and uncoil around him like a restless dragon. Angry breath pelts his skin, which her dress scrubs like a porous stone. Each step shears a little more until he is raw and red and damp as a Brooklyn summer by the time he reaches his cracked porch Agony tears through him like wildfire as he deposits her on the couch, but he doesn't stop to feel it. He fetches her water, he fetches her bread, he brings her a wet cloth to clean her wounds. But when he returns to his living room, she's no longer on the couch. It's a beautiful view, she says from Jenny's warped spot at the window. She must have loved it, at one time. Elmer gulps. She. The leg wound affects the gold-dusted woman's balance as she turns, but pain isn't what gives her a stooped and prowling gait. It's simply how she moves, her head low and shoulders hitched, and her fingertips curled as if preparing to hand-dig a grave. But she crouches in Jenny's divot instead and unfolds her fingers against the floor. "'What were you doing in that mine?' he says." Looking up at Elmer, she smiles wryly and taps the boards with one nail. Who are you? The tapping sets his teeth on edge and drums his nerves raw, and as her pinky moves closer to the notch in the floor, her breath fills the house with cold air that chills his eroded flesh. He shivers so violently, his knees soften and surrender under his weight. He collapses beside her, his muscles shuddering as he smacks her hand away from the notch in the floor. She retreats to the wall and pulls her legs to her chest. She fits perfectly in Jenny's basin, and her eyes are just as tearful with worry. She squeezes them closed and whimpers, Did she die here? Guzzling the last of the knapsack whiskey is the best answer Elmer can give. Fact is, he doesn't know where Jenny died, or where she delivered if she delivered. For Jenny's sake, he hoped she did. Every night since she disappeared, he's prayed that she got to hold her child and hush her with songs unsown from maternal fabric, the kind of music only mothers know before they both went to sleep. But for the baby's sake, he hoped they were still one, that she was safe and warm when their last night came. When Elmer finally arrived home... The massive puddles and smears of blood were old enough to have acquired nests of flies, and though the people of Bodhi confessed to hearing mountain lions brawling in the hills, no one saw them come to town. No one saw them slip into the Ray's house and tear the pregnant woman limb from limb. No one saw them carry her back to their den in pieces like Elmer does in his dreams. "'What took you so long?' asked the gold-dusted woman. What kept you so late at the mine that night? She crawls to him, her scapula oddly jutting from her back, and the dusted fuzz along her arms looking like golden spikes in the moonlight. Pinning him against the couch, she unrolls her spine and looks down on him the way Billy once did. All the fury, all the remorse, all the desperation that drove his best friend to raise a pickaxe and threaten to split his skull roils in her enormous yellow eyes. Her lips move, but it's Billy who speaks. You promised me, he says, all these years, putting it off, waiting for the mother load. and here we are, Elmer. It's time. Something like hot wax drips down either side of his neck, and when he reaches up, he finds his ears soft and sloughing down his face. He screeches and barrels through the woman to reach the whiskey in the kitchen cupboard, but she catches hold of his ankle and curls her claws deep into his flesh. The skin peels too easy, and her grin stretches too wide. Elmer howls as his flesh falls in flanking piles, and he squirms to the stuff that'll set him right. It'll put him back together and shut them all up. She lets him make the journey, and watches in fascination as he rifles through empty bottles and canteens. He tosses them across the kitchen, his lips like dried-up slugs by the time he finds a flask with a splash remaining, but his fingers are too loosely attached to unscrew the cap. That can't help you anymore, Elmer. He flips onto his back and wails at the woman creeping closer. Why are you doing this to me? Her wheezing laughter is a collage of voices. Billy, Jenny, the baby he never heard their screams pour out of her like vomit that drenches Elmer in all the questions his wife and best friend hurtled at him on their last day together. Why weren't you here? Why can't we leave? Why didn't you look for me? Why don't you just die? Gold dust gets in his eyes. His tears thicken it, texture it and despite his mad rubbing and scraping, it encases the organs in the blurry yellow nightmare he's been having for the last ten years. The woman's back appears broken, her limbs bulging and reversed as she crawls to the cradle under the window and stares at the notch. Why didn't you look for me? she whimpers. It's Jenny's voice again, but it sounds strained, even choked, as if she's been calling for hours and her throat is filling up with scabs and loose meat from the brutality of being forgotten. When you came home and saw I was gone, when you saw the blood, why didn't you search the hills with the others? Why did you walk that path over and over until morning? Why was gold more important than our lives? Horus' tears scald his cheeks and fill the air with a meaty stench that prompts the woman to lick her chops. Billy's voice rolls out then, a low rumble that hits Elmer like arrhythmia. But it wasn't the gold that kept you. His head's too cumbersome to shake, and salty golden stalactites form on his cheeks as it hangs limp, his chin to his throbbing chest. I didn't want it to end, he says. The business, the partnership, everything we had. That was the promise we made, Elmer. When we struck the mother load, you had to choose. Me and the gold, or her and the kid. It was too late. I couldn't keep that promise. But I couldn't let you leave with the money either. I couldn't let you leave. The gasp is Jenny's. As is the sorrow, the rage, and the devastation at now knowing that while she and her child died like worthless meat in the hills, Elmer was murdering his lover in their mine. You killed him?! Jenny whispers shakily. My brother? He attacked me when I told him I was choosing you. He was going to kill me. So you killed him. She repeats. My brother. If you only knew how much he hated you. No. Billy says gruffly. I hated you both. I hated that you broke your promise. But I told you, Elmer. Pick your path, and I'll pray. I did my part. There was no other path, Bill. I know. No matter how much you loved me, you were always going to choose her. But you didn't, Jenny says, her voice as distant as the scream that roused him. If you chose me, you would have been there to save me. The beasts took my arm and my eye and my toes, but I was alive for so long, Elmer. We both were. But I couldn't hold on to her. When the woman shivers, phantasmic wails pour like hungry beetles from her body, skittering invisible but deafening about the room. While Elmer cowers in torment, the cries push her closer to the hole in the floor, her fingers outstretched and bones shifting under her flesh. He tries to stop her, but she rears back and slaps him with curled fingertips that smash the tear shards to golden dust and pluck rubies from his cheeks. The woman presses her face to the notch and inhales deep. You couldn't carry him back with you, she says, and glances over, saliva dripping down her chin. Not in one piece. Hooking a finger into the hole, the dusty woman releases an animalistic scream and rips the plank out of the floor. He pulls himself to the opening, where she looks down, mouth agape at what's become of the Brooklyn boy's claim. Though it still shines sometimes in Elmer's dreams, it looks like piles of yellow shit beneath the floorboards. Smells like it, too, even years after the insects stripped Billy's bones. They're scattered throughout the treasure, many still lumped with the same gold that made the trek from the mine to the house all those years ago. While the people of Bodie searched the mountains for Jenny Ray, Elmer marched the path in the dark, back and forth, "'carrying both fortune and curse in his aching arms. "'The golden woman looks down at the bones and gold "'and releases a heavy sigh. "'Favoring her injured leg, "'she faces Elmer with her scapula arched high, "'her head low, and her mandible dropping slowly. "'Her skull stretches and splinters, "'and her beauty drains like a stopped-up sink, "'gurgling brown and clotted before running clear.' When Elmer finally sees the golden creature for what she is, he knows he will not walk the path again. The man and the lion regard each other. Two wounded beasts, desperate to escape, but only one looking to get out alive. Her amber eyes gleam in the moonlight, and her tail twitches a warning. But even as she prepares to pounce, Elmer Ray doesn't move. She fills her belly and slumbers in the cradle beneath the window, rising only when the sun beats hot upon her golden fur. She can't carry much, and she has to walk the path slow, but she's on her way, almost home, to her hungry children screaming in the hills.
1: Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come! (laughs) Don't you want us to keep the lights on?
4: (laughs) When I was 17, I killed my best friend and burned down an abandoned old mansion in the woods. Then I had to live the rest of my life. She moved to Guncotton, West Virginia, with the hope that she might finally be able to face the demons she'd been running from her whole life. If I went back home, maybe I could start writing again. Little does she know, they've been waiting for her all along. You know you can't ever leave me. You don't even want to. We all have to make trades in life. This for that. But tell me. Do you know what is really important to you? Are you feeling well? WSF Productions invites you to brave the foggy streets of Guncotton, West Virginia, the nightmare haze of dream and delusion, and the mists of time itself in this, the fifth season of the West Side Fairy Tales. Scars in Time. 20-episode sonically-driven horror narration written, directed, and produced by Tyler Bell. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com
2: Welcome back. Up next, Jessica McHugh brings you Always a Bride, told by Sarah Ruth Thomas.
0: The House Blushes. From the sleek steel foundation to the hemispheric roof, the Atomic Class Daisy Pod 4 glows hot pink when Molly's taxi docks at the compound. The newly erected residential pods shone like textbook acne from the air. Bulgy domes with the angry tinge of infection under the Mars sunset. But despite their rosy uniformity, Molly knew which pod was hers. And it knows her. It's the smallest model, an economic love nest, according to the atomic class adverts, and the ideal honeymoon hideaway. The description is accurate enough from the outside, but Molly supposes she won't know for sure until Robert joins her. For now, she settles for his hologram. He's pacing a hotel room on Earth, his image broken and fuzzy as it flits around the daisy pod like a honeybee in an arboretum. Molly hasn't even taken off her shoes, and she feels like she needs a nap. She twists her engagement ring, her skin still inflamed and itchy despite the decades-old callus around the finger. Robert, please stand still. I'm getting dizzy. Sorry, babe. I'm already late for the keynote speaker and I still need to shave. You look fine to me. He stops briefly to throw her a kiss. It was an adorable quirk when they were dating, but he doesn't even look at her anymore. He spits the kiss into his fist and lobs it like a carnival baseball, focused more on speed than accuracy. She catches the gesture anyway, holding it to her chest as she says, I miss you. He messes up, knotting his tie, and growls in frustration as he rips it from his neck. I gotta go, babe. Do you need anything else from me? If she could articulate everything she needed, she wouldn't be alone in a daisy pod, talking to his hologram. She spins her engagement ring, and endorphins flood her brain. Better than drugs. Better than any man or woman who might have been the one, if not for the ring she refused to remove when she and Robert were apart but she could never tell him any of this. So she shakes her head, and his image shudders before blinking out. He doesn't say, I love you. She doesn't say, I love you. The house says, I'm afraid I've lost the connection. The house's voice is slightly lower than Molly's, with a lilt that's more affection than accent. It comes at her from all sides, but it's loudest in the foyer, where blue light pulses under the closet door. Behind it, within the recessed chamber, an android sleeps. The light in its sleek barrel chest, a steady blue beam, and its face devoid of detail. A sign above the robot reads, Hello, I'm Daisy. Greet to activate. But Molly clamps her lips in worry. She'd read the catalog front to back, back to front the lovely euphemisms like a white sheet covering a corpse, as well as the autopsy truth outlining the intentions of the house and its android guide. But nothing had prepared her for something so... clunky. Daisy looks more like a bludgeon than a flower, and Molly's heart sinks to her stomach. Maybe she made a mistake with the Daisy Pod 4. Maybe she isn't ready for this. She expects the android to be cold, but when Molly presses her hand to Daisy's chest, warmth pulses into her fingertips and the sign overhead glows red. With a stomach-loosening sigh, she says, hello, Daisy, and jumps back as the android starts vibrating wildly in the wall. As bands of color surge through its hull, the bludgeon softens. Its skull shifts to a delicate collection of mountains and valleys and two opal eyes flutter into holographic existence, glittering in the hollows, while neon blue lips dance over a sculpted mouth. Hello again, Molly. Daisy smiles, and with a troubling pop, the glowing sign spews a handful of sparks and fizzles out. The android's body abruptly dislodges from the chamber, and Daisy falls forward like a dead tree. Molly yelps as she and the robot fall to the floor like children in an orchestra pit, all smack and cling as they flounder for footing. What the hell was that? Molly frees herself from tangled metal limbs and works herself to a standing position. She expects the robot to be right behind her, but Daisy's still on the floor, rocking like an overturned turtle. What's wrong? Can't you walk? Daisy's limbs crumple inward, and her voice shrinks to a hushed but melodic breath. I'm sorry, Molly, but you need to teach me. What? I don't remember anything about that in the catalog. Article 54A regarding genetic linking to leaseholder. Some hands-on instruction required. What does that mean? It means I need you to teach me. Molly's exhausted all of a sudden. Her hip is aching more than usual thanks to the fall, and she wants it to end. All of it. No more waiting. No more euphemistic games. She wants the supposed honeymoon hideaway to do its job. The lonely bride looks to the living room like Robert might still be there, fighting with his Victoria Knot, and Daisy emits a sentimental hum. I can bring him back if you want, or anyone, whenever you miss them. They aren't real. No, They aren't real. Would you like something real? She nods, and the android's trunk shifts as if it's being moved by an army of ants. It twists and bends until Daisy's sitting up, her smooth silver legs extended, arms limp at her sides, and several pieces of thin, flexible metal slowly emerging from her ankles and wrists. I need you to teach me, Molly. I'm not strong enough to carry you. I was made for you to carry. Her blue light beats fast. I'm real, Molly, and my needing you is real. Tears rise in Molly's eyes, and the breath drains from her lungs. She holds her chest as she sinks to the floor beside the android, whose holographic lips downturn in worry. Are you alright? She doesn't know how to answer. No, she isn't all right, because despite living on her own for the last four decades, being alone in this pod doesn't feel like the cramped studios and moldy basement apartments of her younger days. Not even her later years living in Glaxis Motel zoos, being watched day and night by wealthy voyeurs, made her feel as small and exposed as she does right now. Nothing in her life had prepared her to be needed. Not Robert when he was around. Not Peter, Tom, or Genevieve, or the multitude of eyes she pretended not to see outside her Glaxis Zoo window. They didn't need her, but they wanted her. And being wanted, even fleetingly, was better than nothing. But not forever. Gazing at the android that requires her instruction to function, Molly pushes that long-ago lesson into the dark with Tom and Jen and the others, and nods at Daisy. Yes. Yes. She is all right. Better than all right. And as she lifts her bare wrists to the robot, the thin buckles open and stretch to close around her. Cuffed around her arms and legs, her waist and neck, Daisy and Molly move as one. Every flex and extension, a priceless education. It's awkward at first. They are a toddler and toy, tripping over and carrying each other from room to room in strange, giddy fogs, and Molly soon loses track of where she ends and Daisy begins. They are seamlessly hinged, each step recorded in both of their bones as they bound around the pod. Time folds and reshapes them, and it is always daytime in the Daisy Pod 4, so Molly keeps walking and leaping and, for the first time in a long time, weeping when she finds herself in the bathroom. It's so clean, it feels like a threat. The sink looks naked without toppled prescription bottles and toothpaste tubes curled up like dead worms. Molly prefers clutter. It comforts her to see everything she owns scattered out before her. Always identifiable, always available. Whether a current necessity or a scrap of the past, she delights in being able to put her finger on an object and remember precisely why it kept her alive. Your heart is racing. I'll be fine. It's faster now. You're frightened. I said I'm fine. Now you're angry. When she stamps her foot, Daisy stamps with her, and the bathroom shakes all around them. The clean veneer blurs like it was just a projection, and in the static, Molly sees her pill bottles, her razors, and bobby pins and the tubes of neon lipstick she was never courageous enough to wear in public. The overhead lights switch off, and the mirrors are suddenly transparent, for Molly, at least. The woman on the other side doesn't see her, and keeps right on squeezing grease out of her pores and scraping plaque from her teeth. The bald bulbs over the other woman's mirror hang like elderly testicles, casting their dim lights directly into the orange bottles and making lighthouses of them all. They shine on the woman, but Molly looks beyond her to the zoo windows. The crowd is massive. They struggle to get a good spot, packed in like spastic sardines. But Robert is serene at the smudged glass. When the splotchy-faced woman looks over her shoulder, he throws her a kiss and massages his groin when she catches it. She's still holding his kiss in one withered fist when she turns back to the mirror and looks Molly dead in the eyes. Both women lean in. Both women touch the mirror. Only one smiles at what she sees. The lights flip back on, and Molly's breath fogs up her reflection. In that moment, she knows she made the right choice. The exhaustion that rolled her like a vindictive ocean wave is a seashell now. It's been scrubbed of its sharp edges, now soft and pink as a spring morning on Earth. Whispering of its years in bondage. She feels light, like bubbles rising in a champagne flute. I'm walking, Molly. I'm walking just like you. She hadn't noticed the android's disconnection, but it's standing on its own now. Chin lifted, chest puffed, and blue lips curled into a satisfied bow as she demonstrates the stride she'd learned. But Molly hadn't walked so confidently outside the pod. She had to hunch in her basement apartments, and often felt like she was slithering when she crossed her room at the zoo. Following Daisy's proud stride, she finds herself falling into the same rhythm. Her chin is indeed lifted, and her sternum raised to the heavens. She imagines her own pulsing blue light at her breast as they march round and round, laughing and singing as the cameras were in pursuit. A prolonged honk halts Molly and Daisy slams into her back. Apologizing, the android shakes off the collision and hurries to the door. It opens automatically, and Daisy greets the delivery man with a more robotic voice than she'd been using with Molly. When he thrusts out a clipboard, the tip of Daisy's right pinky finger flips open, and a pen pops out. She signs the pad, and he thanks her. Thank you. Have an autumny classy day. What is it? Molly asks, craning to see around the door. Daisy beckons her outside to the small but lustrous two-seater space cab in the driveway. It looks exactly like the pod, right down to its sunset hue. And as Molly joins Daisy's side, she realizes the android's skin has turned the same color. It's all connected, Molly says, amazed. You, the house, the car, and you, Molly. Daisy blinks her large opal eyes. Do you want to take a drive? I don't know how. Smiling, the android opens the hatch to the driver's seat. Let me teach you. It helps her in, and she twists her engagement ring as the android goes limp on the driveway, and the cab flares with life. It's simple transferring the Daisy Pod 4's consciousness to the cab, but Molly's transference is another matter entirely. She didn't think she'd set foot outside the compound again, so the prospect of being back in the world that repeatedly used her up and discarded her doesn't exactly excite her. But then the cab's engine rumbles to life and Daisy's voice purring from the steering wheel vibrates her hands, comforting as the holographic clutter that clogs up the ship's dashboard. Fast food cups and bank receipts, cheap knickknacks and dead bugs. All the garbage she'd let pile up if she'd owned a ship allows her to relax into the seat and enjoy the journey. Her hands are on the wheel, but she doesn't steer. It's all Daisy, carrying them from the compound to the frenetic streets downtown, turning and halting at the cherry red traffic bulbs freckled between the buildings. The cabs and spaceships buzzing through the airspace look like bubbles in the glossy architecture, each spire and hemispheric structure also distorting the reflections of pedestrians on moving walkways. She watches them the way she was watched, eyes fixed and widening, tongue curled against the roof of her mouth, then unrolling like an old rug concealing a corpse, fingers wanting to wander and clench and strangle, and two words longing to smash the barriers to bits. See me. There are a fleet of ships ahead, each one a beauty. With sparkle and roar, They make her promises that Molly wishes they'd keep. They barrel ahead, boisterous as young love, and she closes her eyes, wondering how the downtown mountains will change her reflection. Her seatbelt tightens and the cab fills with warmth. It feels like Daisy is hugging her from behind or like they might still be attached. That feeling of heaviness is a hallelujah that encircles Molly like a vow. The spacecraft zooms down the street and the ancient callus on Molly's ring finger itches so bad she rubs it against the steering wheel. I thought you wanted something meaningful. Yes. No one has been good to you. No one has known you. I know you, Molly. I've been you, and you've been me. The spacecraft cuts around a training cab and into a steady flow of evening commuters. Daisy's voice vibrates in her fingers. I won't leave you. We're in this together. I was made for you to carry. I don't know how, Daisy. I'm afraid. Stay with me, Molly. I'll teach you. The itch is overwhelming. With a grunt, Molly spins her engagement ring, and the spacecraft rolls like a boulder through oncoming traffic. Blue light pulses faintly in the dark. There's a ring on her finger, on every finger, on her wrists and ankles, and around her waist. So many promises, so many plans, so many fat eyes outside thin windows keeping her small, hunched, and slithering. Yet so few who wish to see her any other way. Watching her strut so confident through the pod would have disgusted them. Seeing her glad to teach and open to learn, would have sent them running in opposite directions. But they're all dead now. They must be. The crash was so bad. Molly feels weightless, yet there's a distinct feeling of compression that keeps her serene as bleeding colors join the flashing blue. She calls out for Daisy, but her friend doesn't come. She shouts for help, but not even an echo replies. The bathroom light is on, magnifying the torturous cleanliness. But as soon as she concentrates on how much she hates it, a layer of flickering clutter fills the vanity, the floor, and every corner of the Daisy Pod 4. As sweet as it is, she can't help imagining all the lovers who would have hated it. God knows where Robert actually is these days, but she wants to make him see her, commanding the fabric of space-time. Daisy, connect me with Robert Mayer. No response. Daisy, open an interdimensional line to Robert Mayer. Silence. The lights go out in the bathroom, and Molly can see the woman in the transparent mirror again. She was never so shiny when she was in the Glaxis Zoo, and her face was never so interesting. With smooth panels of metal and broken bone shards making a futuristic castle of her skull, both Molly and her former self earned scores of glistening stares from the voyeurs outside. Robert is there, still salivating, this time on bended knee, and Peter is pawing the glass. Genevieve has already left with a younger girl, and Trey is mocking her, despite the roses in his hands. Molly reaches out, grasping for every person she loved over the last 60 years. Everyone who left her always a bride, never a wife, but the metallic pens that tip her fingers clack on the mirror and keep her past forever at a distance. She draws back, then taps the mirror again, playfully. It's real, and it's just a reflection. No one on the other side can touch her anymore, not even herself. It's just another piece of glass, another wall of broken promises. Even if they can somehow find a way through the barrier... They're harmless to something as special as her. A strange and lovely android lifts her head, curls her neon lips, and walks through her holographic clutter to the chamber in the wall. She will have forgotten how to walk by the time she wakes again. But she will have forgotten everything else, too. And everyone. Every twist of the ring. Her frame locks into place. The sign glows hot pink and the house blushes. Hello, I'm Molly. Greet to activate.
1: Hello, kiddies! So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers, and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice... More to us. (laughs) Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Led yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan?